0: Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Our journalism is powered by you, not by any corporation or government. That means we count on your support to produce our daily news hour. Please make your donation of $5 or $10 or more at democracynow.org. Every dollar makes a difference. Thank you so much.
1: New York this is Democracy Now I'm suing the university for violating students' federally protected rights to reasonable accommodations. I don't want anyone else to experience what Yale has put me and countless other students through already. And I hope that this lawsuit can be the first step in changing how we treat mental health to approach it with care and compassion rather than punishment.
0: A group of current and former Yale students have sued the Ivy League school for discriminating against students with mental health health challenges in violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act. The lawsuit alleges Yale pressures students to withdraw from the school if they're suicidal or hospitalized for mental health treatment. Then the jail scraper versus Chinatown. We look at a fight in Chinatown, New York, against the city's plans to build the tallest jail in the world. $8.3
2: billion are going to be spent to build monuments
0: to incarceration for profit. We cannot let them do this. The jail scraper would be a third as high as the Empire State Building. We'll speak to a Chinatown activist, a New York City council member, and an award-winning filmmaker who are part of a growing campaign to say no to the new mega-jail. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Georgia, voters are heading to the polls Tuesday in the closely watched runoff between Senator Raphael Warnock and Republican challenger Herschel Walker. A record 1.85 million Georgians cast early votes, with over 350,000 people voting on Friday alone, setting a new single-day state record. This is Senator. Warnock speaking to voters at a church in Athens, Georgia, Sunday.
3: The people of Georgia need a true champion. Women need a champion.
0: Workers need a champion. Our kids need a champion. The planet needs a champion. We're on a different field tonight. Meanwhile, last week, a third former partner accused Herschel Walker of violently attacking her. The DNC's Rules Committee agreed Friday with President Biden's plan to make South Carolina the first primary contest of the 2024 presidential election, replacing the Iowa caucus. Primaries in Nevada, New Hampshire, Georgia and Michigan will then follow. Iowa and New Hampshire, which had kicked off the voting schedule for decades, are two of the whitest states in the country. President Biden said the new voting calendar will give more weight to voters of color, which helped propel him to victory in 2020. Russia says it will not adhere to a G7-imposed $60-per-barrel price cap on maritime shipments of Russian crude oil, which went into effect today. The new rule means third parties would not be able to import Russian crude using G7 and European Union vessels and companies unless they respect the price cap. Ukraine's government said the $60-per-barrel price tag was still too high to impact Russia's ability to fund its invasion. An EU embargo on Russian crude also begins today. This comes amidst a deepening energy crisis across Europe, affecting millions of people as winter weather sets in. On Saturday, people across the United Kingdom took to the streets to protest fuel poverty caused by soaring energy prices. Demonstrators are demanding the government fund renewable energy and home insulation— Meanwhile, French President Emmanuel Macron attempted to mollify fears of potential large-scale rolling blackouts caused by energy shortages.
4: Don't panic. That's pointless. There's legitimate work to be done by the government to prepare for extreme cases, which is, of course, the need to cut electricity for some hours in the day if we have a shortage.
0: Ukraine's government says Russia's launched a fresh series of missile attacks across Ukraine with air raid sirens sounding today in the capital, Kiev, and other cities. This follows reports of intense battles in the eastern Donetsk region. Large sections of the city of Bakhmut have been destroyed after months of attacks. Meanwhile, a new report shows global arms sales increased for the seventh consecutive year in 2021, rising to $592 billion. On Friday, Northrop Grumman unveiled its $700 million B-21 stealth bomber. The U.S. Air Force reportedly plans to buy at least 100 of the warplanes, which can deliver conventional and thermonuclear weapons. Code Pink co-founder Medea Benjamin blasted the ominous death machine, as she called it, telling Common Dreams, quote, one thing the world definitely does not need is another stealth bomber. In North Carolina, authorities have called a state of emergency and imposed a curfew in Moore County after gunfire at two power substations cut power to some 45,000 customers Sunday. This is Sheriff Ronnie Fields.
3: We're looking at all avenues. Uh, That's the reason I've got the professionals, the federal folks. Uh, They deal with the domestic terrorism more than locals. Uh, So they're on board and and they're working with us uh, to to determine exactly uh, who done this. Now, I can say this, this individual that done this, it was targeted. It wasn't random.
0: Authorities have yet to identify any suspects in the shootings. Local officials warn power could be out until Thursday amidst freezing temperatures. Schools are closed. President Biden Friday signed into law a bill prohibiting a rail strike, imposing a deal rejected by over half of unionized rail workers over its lack of paid sick leave. At the signing, Biden acknowledged the issues with the bill.
5: And look, I know this bill doesn't have paid sick leave, that these rail workers and frankly every worker in America deserves. But that fight isn't over.
0: Labor activists have condemned President Biden and Democratic Party leaders for failing to secure paid time off for workers who become ill. Pressure is now building on Biden to issue an executive order requiring paid sick days. Railroad Workers United said in a statement, "The U.S. rail system should come under public ownership, and freight workers should consider supporting leaders outside the existing two-party system." The general secretary of the R.W.U. said, "Quote this one-two punch from the two political parties." is despicable. In international labor news, thousands of unionized workers marched in Seoul, South Korea, Saturday in a show of support for truckers who've been on strike since last week over a dispute around the price of freight. The South Korean government ordered truckers to return to work under a contested law that could impose fines or even jail time if workers continue a work stoppage. This is a spokesperson from the Korean Confederation of Trade Unions. We're told to stop
4: the strike and get back to work because the knock-on effects on the economy are too serious. However, if you think about it in reverse, it means that the truckers have not been paid enough, despite their huge influence on the national economy.
0: Iran's top prosecutor says authorities have suspended the nation's morality police and have placed Iran's mandatory hijab law under review. The claims by Iran's attorney general have not been verified. It's not clear whether authorities 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 would seek to enforce Iran's strict dress code in other ways. This follows more than 11 weeks of nationwide protests, sparked by the death in Morality Police custody of Masa Amini, a 22 year old Kurdish Iranian woman who was arrested for allegedly violating laws requiring women to cover their hair and wear loose fitting clothing. Also on Saturday, Iran's interior ministry provided its first death toll since the protests erupted, claiming more than 200 people have been killed in what it called riots. That's about half the deaths documented by the group Iran Human Rights, which reports at least 448 people, including 60 children, have been killed by Iran's security forces since September. Meanwhile, Iranian authorities have reportedly destroyed the family home of El nasraq the 33-year-old rock climber who drew international headlines in October when she joined a competition in South Korea without wearing a headscarf. A warning to our audience, this headline contains graphic images and descriptions of violence. In the occupied West Bank, a 22-year-old Palestinian man was shot dead by Israeli forces near the city of Bethlehem earlier today and the latest killing to come from near-daily raids on Palestinian communities. Six other Palestinians were injured during the Monday morning assault on the Dehaysha refugee camp. This follows the killing on Friday of a 23-year-old Palestinian man by an Israeli soldier who's been accused of carrying out a summary execution. Video of the incident in a town south of Nablus shows the Israeli soldier holding 23-year-old Amar Mufla in a headlock. Mufla then breaks free of the chokehold, and after a scuffle, the soldier pulls out a pistol and fires it repeatedly at the young Palestinian man. The killing has sparked widespread protests. The U.N.'s Middle East envoy said he was horrified by the killing and added, quote, "...such incidents must be fully and promptly investigated and those responsible held accountable," unquote. In Syria, at least two people were killed after Syrian security forces fired live ammunition during rare anti-government protests. Dozens of demonstrators stormed a government building in the southern city of Sueda on Sunday, denouncing economic hardships.
4: We want Syria to give us our rights We want our dignity We are asking for our rights and dignity Our message today is to the government You see how people are dying from starvation People are waiting for aid
0: United Nations warns Syria's 11-year-old civil war has left 90 percent of the population below the poverty line, with 60 percent of Syrians suffering from food insecurity. A U.N. envoy last month urged Western and other nations to lift decades-old catastrophic sanctions on Syria. Sudan's ruling military junta and pro-democracy groups have signed an initial deal to end their political standoff and prepare... Sudan, for its first election and transition to civilian rule after the October 2021 military coup. The agreement establishes a two-year civilian-led transitional government and appoints a prime minister ahead of the elections. Several key players have boycotted the deal as they've refused to negotiate with Sudan's military rulers. Protesters who took to the streets ahead of the signing object to the exclusion of a transitional justice system or the implementation of key military reforms. Meanwhile, prominent leftist Sudanese politician Wagdi Salah, a member of the pro-democracy coalition that signed the deal, was freed from jail on Sunday. Talks between the parties have been facilitated by the United Nations, the United States, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates, among others. This is the first of at least two planned accords. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, tens of thousands took to the streets Sunday in one of the largest mass protests since fighting escalated between the government and the M23 rebel group in recent months. Last week, DRC's armed forces accused M23 of killing at least 50 civilians in the eastern town of Kashiche, violating a five-day ceasefire. M23 denied it had targeted civilians. The UN's peacekeeping mission in the DRC also denounced the killings and called for an investigation to bring the purpose Perpetrators to justice. Nearly 400,000 people have been displaced by the shooting, by the fighting. Former President Trump has called for terminating the U.S. Constitution as he continues to rail against his election loss in 2020. In a post on his social media platform, Truth Social, Trump wrote, quote, A massive fraud of this type and magnitude allows for the termination of all rules, regulations and articles, even those found in the Constitution, unquote. A flurry of Democrats in the White House swiftly rebuked the comment, while top Republican leadership remained silent. Trump's post followed a Twitter thread by reporter Matt Taibbi, promoted by Elon Musk, detailing Twitter's internal discussions in 2020 as the platform decided to block links to a New York Post article about emails found on Hunter Biden's laptop. In other Trump news, a prosecutor in the criminal tax fraud trial of his real estate business told a Manhattan court Friday, evidence shows, quote, Mr. Trump is explicitly sanctioning tax fraud. The trial's expected to wrap up this week. And in Washington, D.C., Jane Fonda led climate activists on their first Fire Drill Friday rally in nearly three years. Protesters were joined by some Democratic lawmakers and members of the Biden administration to demand Senator Joe Manchin's dirty deal, granting favorable permitting to the fossil fuel industry be shot down for good. This is climate activist Maria Lopez-Nunez. No
5: more sacrifice of our communities for the greater good. All right? The greater good will come from a just transition, where we're all taken care of, where we transform the foundation of this society and break apart the racism, the classism. No means no. And we've already told no to this dirty side deal. So let's send it back where the hell it came from, and let's actually build a future, a future
0: without compromise. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The tallest jail in the world? That's coming up. But first, a group of current and former Yale students have sued the Ivy League school for discriminating against students with mental health challenges. Back in a moment. La Primavera by Manu Chao. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. A group of current and former students at Yale University have sued the Ivy League school for discriminating against students with mental health challenges in violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act. The lawsuit alleges Yale pressures students to withdraw from the school if they're suicidal or hospitalized for mental health treatment. Some students who refuse to withdraw are then involuntarily withdrawn. One plaintiff said authorities at Yale visited her in the hospital after she overdosed on aspirin to urge her to withdraw. When she didn't, the university involuntarily withdrew her while she was still hospitalized. She was then told she would need a police escort to retrieve her belongings. The lawsuit alleges Yale has, quote, "...treated unequally and failed to accommodate students with mental health disabilities." The lawsuit goes on to say, quote, the impact of Yale's discriminatory policies is harshest on students with mental health disabilities from less privileged backgrounds, including students of color, students from poor families or rural areas, and international students, unquote. In 2018, the Ruderman Family Foundation issued a report on absences and withdrawal policies at Ivy League schools. Yale was awarded an F, for its policies. Yale has said its withdrawal policies are now under review. The lawsuit cites the case of a former student named Nicolette Mantica. In this video, produced by the group Eli's for Rachel, Nicolette describes what happened.
5: When my condition got to a place in which I really needed to get help, I ended up seeking help through Yale Health but after a few months of treatment was hospitalized and eventually was asked to leave on medical withdrawal. It was really shocking um, because I wasn't really in a life or death circumstance. I had very little knowledge beforehand about what decisions were being made on my behalf Um, and it happened really suddenly I was told I was going to have to leave Yale and I had two hours to pack all my things and then I was gone and in my time away from Yale I was living back home in a rural area in which I didn't have many resources and was hospitalized again just six months later but in transferring to Northwestern University, I found that I could find providers who cared for me as an individual and the university that would support me as a student.
0: Those are the words of former Yale University student Nicolette Montica. We're joined now by three guests. Alicia Abramson is with us. She is a current Yale student, one of the named plaintiffs in the lawsuit against the university. She said Yale repeatedly refused to accommodate her mental health struggles related to an eating disorder, depression and insomnia. Miriam Hyman is also with us. She's senior research associate at the Lurie Institute for Disability Policy at Brandeis University. She authored the 2018 Ruderman White Paper on mental health in the Ivy League, which is cited in the Yale lawsuit. Monica Porter is an attorney for the Bazelon Center for Mental Health Law, one of the groups representing the Yale plaintiffs. We welcome you all to Democracy Now! Alicia, let's begin with you. We're reaching you in New Haven right now. You're currently a student. But talk about your journey and what happened to you and why you're suing the university you're attending.
1: Yeah, it's been a long journey for me. Um, I started at Yale in 2018, and I'd been dealing with mental health issues for a while already. Um, But once I got to campus, I struggled to receive accommodations almost right away um, I was told by the psychiatrist that I was seeing at Yale that Yale Mental Health has a policy of not helping students get accommodations um, because we could be untruthful about our symptoms. And these were the same symptoms he was prescribing me medications for. Um, so it was definitely a struggle to try to get any sort of accommodation from the university. And I wasn't able to take a part-time course load because that's against Yale's policies. Um, so ultimately, I made the choice to withdraw in 2019. And when I did withdraw, it was basically an immediate ban from anything related to Yale. So I couldn't take courses. I couldn't participate in activities. Um, I wasn't even allowed to step foot on campus. And I lost my health insurance. I forfeited most of my tuition. Um, so it certainly felt like Yale was abandoning me when I was in need of the most help. Um And how did you come back? Yeah, the reinstatement process. What was required of you
0: to step foot back on campus and become a student again?
1: It was a very arduous process to get back in. There was an application that involved an essay and several letters of recommendation. um, And I also had to complete two classes at a four-year university. And Yale has since removed that policy. Um, but at the time, it was very expensive and time consuming. And all of that was meant to assess how, if I had used my time off productively, which, you know, it felt like I should be using my time off to heal, not be productive. Um, but yeah, when I came back, I was still struggling to get accommodation. So it's definitely been a challenge to get support from this university.
0: I mean, what's interesting about you being um, losing much of your tuition for that semester and your health insurance is that if you wanted to withdraw, that would be because you felt you needed to for your own mental health. Um, that would be such a deterrent from doing it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of students are deterred for that reason, um, because they know they'll get cut off from resources. And I was lucky in that, you know, I could turn to my family for support um, and for financial help and for help getting treatment. But a lot of students aren't in that position and they rely on Yale for insurance, for treatment, for housing, um, for visas. And so when Yale cuts them off completely, they have nowhere to turn.
0: I want to go right now to Monica Porter. Um, she is with the Bazelon Center. Um, the Bazelon Center is um, uh, representing uh, the students who have sued Yale University, the Bazelon Center for Mental Health Law. Um, Monica Porter, if you can talk about this lawsuit, um, you have— um, uh, In in this case, you have Alicia, who's one of the named plaintiffs. Talk about whether this is a class action suit and what you're demanding.
6: Yes, we are seeking for this to be a class action suit, which would enable us to represent Alicia, uh, the other named plaintiffs, as well as all Yale students who have or have a record of a mental health disability and who are being harmed or who fear being harmed by Yale's policies. What we're seeking in this lawsuit is simple, common-sense policy reform. None of the plaintiffs who are a part of this are seeking any form of monetary relief. We're purely seeking improvement in Yale's policies as they pertain to withdrawals, that requirement that Alicia mentioned about uh, all students having to be full-time and not allowing part-time as an option, as well as policies that enable students to seek and receive the reasonable accommodations that they're entitled to under federal law.
1: I
0: wanted to go to another clip um, uh, about a student uh, at Yale University. This is Alicia Floyd talking about her experience at Yale. She's now a doctor. Uh, It was about 20 years ago.
7: I matriculated in 1998 and I graduated in 2005 Um, and those were not good years (laughs) those were not good years for me I fell into a deep depression Um, I that culminated in my overdosing Uh, I was hospitalized actually I was hospitalized twice Um, I had to withdraw from college and apply for readmission and go through that whole process. I think it's now called reinstatement, uh, but essentially the same. Um, And um, if I could go back and talk to 19-year-old me, 19-year-old me who is like sitting on the ground outside of University Health at two in the morning in the dark crying (laughs) Just sobbing because I can't figure out how to open the door and I really want someone to talk to. I think the first thing I would do is just give myself a hug. Because it's hard. It's hard being at Yale. If you're at Yale right now and you're struggling and you're feeling like you can't keep up and you're feeling crushed by the weight of a million expectations. Just know that you're not alone. (laughs) You're definitely not alone.
0: So that's now Dr. Alicia Floyd. I want to go back to October 2016. Yale student Hale Ross died by suicide. This is Hale's dad, Jack Ross, who also attended Yale.
3: It's been quite a journey since I left Yale in 1979. Despite struggles with bipolar depression and alcoholism that could have killed me, I'm still in the game. I have a great life. But tragically, my son Hale is no longer in the game. He took his life in October 2016 during his junior year at Yale. It's something I'll process for the rest of my life. I think he held himself to a, a nearly unattainable standard of perfection. And, and, you know, we all know academic and other pressures are, are a normal part of college life, but, but what happens is that, that mental illness can, can cause those pressures to escalate into a severe loss of mental calibration, if you want to call it that. Um, you, I know all too well you can totally lose your perspective on yourself and on your connection to the world. So in the end, I don't, I don't think Hale was able to perceive the vast worth of his life that far transcended Yale, or see that he could have recovered if he had reached out for help. So we need to talk about mental illness at Yale to boost awareness, reduce stigma, and take steps to try to avoid tragedies like Hale's death.
0: So these videos were created by Eli's for Rachel. That's a mental health advocacy group, Eli for Eli Yale, who founded Yale. Eli's for Rachel formed in the wake of Rachel Shaw Rosenbaum's death by suicide in March of 2021. She was a freshman at Yale. Um, Democracy Now! reached out to Yale University yesterday. We invited its president, Peter Salovey, on the program. While that request was denied, a spokesperson for Yale, Karen Pertz, sent us a statement that read in part We recognize how distressing and difficult it is for the student and their loved ones when a student is facing mental health challenges. When we make decisions and set policies, our primary focus is on students' safety and health, especially when they're most vulnerable. We have taken steps in recent years to simplify the return to Yale for students on medical withdrawals and to provide additional support for students. We're also working to increase resources to help students. We've been working on policy changes that are responsive to students' emotional and financial well-being. Alicia Abramson, um, again, you're one of the named plaintiffs in the suit, does that satisfy you. Also, um, if you can talk about um, the protections that you have as a student at Yale that you did not feel were being respected.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that Yale has made a few changes. Um, You know, they've gotten rid of that coursework requirement. They've added a couple more counselors. And I think That's a great start, but it's certainly not enough, um, and it's not even close to the substantial policy changes that actually need to happen. Um, And I think in terms of what I experienced, it was denial of those accommodations um, that I do have protections to and rights to as a student at Yale. Um, It was denial of those accommodations. It was an arduous reinstatement process that only re-traumatized me even more, um, and ultimately, it was the way that Yale treats their disabled students like they're criminals. Um, they treat us with punishment and discipline. They don't meet us with resources or support. Um, but ultimately, like, we're not criminals. We're sick and we need help. Um, but that's not what Yale has given us.
0: I want to bring Miriam Hyman into this conversation, senior research associate at the Lurie Institute for Disability Policy at Brandeis University, who, co- who authored the report in 2018, um, the Ruderman White Paper on Mental Health and the Ivy League, which is cited in the Yale lawsuit. Um, Mon- um if, if you can talk, Miriam Hyman, about— uh, what's happening at Yale, clearly they are not alone. And also what the Americans with Disabilities Act has to do with all of this.
8: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you for having me. Um, I agree that, unfortunately, Yale is is not alone in this. Um, mental health is a, is a very large challenge on college campuses. Data from before the, the pandemic showed that um, across the country, about 40% of undergraduates have been so depressed in the past year that it was difficult for them to function. Um, that's exploded since the pandemic and that's higher than um, the prevalence rates for young adults of similar age groups who are not enrolled in college um, for a lot of reasons, but partially because, because college is stressful. And meanwhile, colleges across the country, and and this is also not specific to Yale, lack the infrastructure to support students' mental health. On average, across the country on smaller campuses, there's about one clinician for every 1,000 to 2,000 students. On larger campuses, there's about one clinician to every 2,000 to 3,500 students. Um, So colleges are, are not prepared to meet the mental health needs of their students. And unfortunately, they are often resorting to exclusion via the the leave of absence um, by excluding their students um, who have mental illness, as opposed to figuring out ways to accommodate them um, to stay on campus, which which the students are entitled to, according to the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, the, The policies as they're written currently, are often vehicles for exclusion. So Alicia mentioned that she is prohibited from visiting campus, that students on leave are prohibited from visiting campus. Um, that's true in, in a lot of different policies. And from a, from a mental health perspective, for students who are on leaves of absence who live nearby, um, coming to campus you know, to have a meal in the cafeteria or to spend a, a night in the dorms might be essential to their sense of community and, and social belonging. Um, and unfortunately, through that example and, and other exclusionary aspects of policies, um, leaves of absence are, are worsening students' well-being instead of um, improving it.
0: Let me ask you, Professor Hyman, um, about some universities' policies against so-called community disruption, including help-seeking behaviors. Um, can you talk about what are examples of what helps students in these terrible times of crisis for them?
8: Yeah, so that's a really important point. Many school's leave-of-absence policies, and actually Yale's does not have this in the policy, which is a good thing, but many students, many schools' leave-of-absence policies um, include community disruption as grounds for a, an involuntary leave. Um, the problem with the term community disruption is that it is very vague and, be, and can be applied very broadly. Um, so what can happen and has happened is that students, for example, who are um, experiencing thoughts about suicide might tell their roommate or their friends that they're having these thoughts, Um, and that can be upsetting to roommates and friends, can be construed as community disruption, and students can um, have a leave of absence imposed on them. Um, The problem is that when students are struggling, we want them to, to... seek help. We want them to tell their friends, professionals at the school that they need help. Um, that is how they will eventually get better. And when we exclude students for, for sharing and disclosing that they're having a hard time, um, we are detracting from, from their well-being. Another example of a, of a community disruption is if a parent For example, requests that the campus security do a wellness check to make sure that their child in the dorm is is okay. Um, That has been construed as community disruption, and we absolutely do not want to discourage parents from from checking on their students if if they're worried.
0: Let me ask um, Monica Porter um, at the Bazelon Center. if you can talk about examples around the country um, specifically where a student was actually supported and what makes the most difference for students going through these times?
6: That's a great question. Uh, at the Baselin Center, we've been collecting data at universities across the nation to inform the policy advocacy um, and suggestions that we are making. Uh, Unfortunately, I don't have an example offhand, but I could say some of the things that schools could be doing to support students, uh, to train faculty and staff on mental health disabilities uh, and that they are protected by federal civil rights laws, that students with mental health disabilities, just as students and people with physical and learning disabilities are entitled to reasonable accommodations. And entitled to equal opportunity to participate in programs and services in the most integrated setting appropriate. Schools should be taking measures to treat all students individually to assess what could be done and how students could be accommodated without resorting to exclusion.
0: And can you talk about um, what happened before COVID and then through the pandemic, where the issue of mental health And students, young students, college students, graduate students um, are just experiencing a level of mental health challenges that we haven't seen before.
6: Absolutely. Well, as we've seen, Dr. Hyman's report was done prior to the pandemic. So these are issues that have existed for years. During the pandemic, I think, as you say, students experienced heightened levels of stress and also, the nation conversation about mental health has shifted. We're very grateful for the opportunity to discuss it today on your program. And in addition to us talking about it more at the kitchen table and on social media and what have you, the United States Departments of Justice and Education have further taken steps to affirm students' rights and schools' responsibilities to protect students, especially in the era of COVID 19.
0: And finally, Alicia Abramson, um, if you can talk about what it has meant for you to come out so publicly in this way, being a named plaintiff in the lawsuit against your university, and how it's felt to return to school, what kind of accommodations have actually helped you in dealing with your anorexia, your insomnia, your depression?
1: Yeah, luckily I was eventually able to get accommodations for my eating disorder. Um, it took a lot of fighting, but I was able to secure those. But Yale has still denied me accommodations for my insomnia. Um, despite the fact that I've submitted several letters from medical providers. Um, so that has definitely still been a challenge. Um, but ultimately I think you know, doing this and coming out with my story has been really pow- powerful for me and hopefully for the other students that have experienced the same thing. Um, yeah, I've received so much support already from students at Yale and at other universities who are struggling and who feel like they're alone against these very powerful institutions. Um, so ultimately, I'm just very, very grateful that I've had the opportunity to actually do something about it um, and hopefully begin to shift the way that we treat mental health on campuses.
0: And finally, Miriam Hyman, is this the... Um a first-of-a-kind lawsuit, and what are you hoping it will do for not just Ivy League universities but colleges around the
8: country? So it's pertaining to discrimination against college students with mental illness, but I think what I hope is that because it's Yale, um, which is obviously one of the, the most elite universities, that um, changes that this lawsuit will um, bring not only to Yale, but that other schools will be encouraged to, to follow suit. Because, you know, I, do, I don't think that this problem is specific to Yale, but I think that um, Yale now has an opportunity to make changes and, and, and provide an example to the rest of the sector. Well, uh, Dr. Miriam Hyman, we thank you for being with us.
0: Lurie, Institute for Disability Policy at Brandeis University in Massachusetts. Alicia Abramson, Yale student, named plaintiff in the lawsuit. Thanks for joining us from New Haven. And Monica Porter, attorney for the Bazelon Center for Mental Health Law, one of the organizations representing the Yale plaintiffs. If you or someone you know needs help, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. You can also reach a crisis counselor by messaging the crisis text line at 741741. Coming up, we look at the jail scraper versus Chinatown. We look at a fight in Chinatown, New York, against the city's plan to build the tallest jail in the world— It's happening now. Stay with us. (laughs) Alma by Tanya León, one of those celebrated Sunday night at the Kennedy Center honors, along with Gladys Knight, Amy Grant, U2, and George Clooney. Tanya León is a Cuban-born composer, conductor, and educator who helped found the Dance Theater of Harlem. She instituted the Brooklyn Philharmonic Community Concert Series in 1978. This is Democracy Now! democracynow.org The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we look now at the fight to stop the construction of what could be the world tallest jail in Chinatown, the neighborhood of Manhattan. The 300-foot-tall so-called jail scraper, or mega-jail, would be a third as high as the Empire State Building. It's one of four new jails that are part of a plan to replace the city's notorious Rikers Island Jail, where 18 prisoners have died this year alone. The Marshall Project reports the borough-based jail plan focuses on building near courthouses and would feature jails meant to be more, quote, humane. Opponents of the $8 billion plan, including the No New Jails Coalition, have called instead for the city to invest in non-carceral violence prevention, harm reduction, and crisis management. In addition to the jail scraper in Manhattan, the city's plan includes new jails in Queens, Brooklyn, and the Bronx. It excludes Staten Island, predominantly white and conservative. Chinatown is one of New York City's poorest neighborhoods, with more than a quarter of residents living in poverty, including a third of senior citizens. And Mark... March Hundreds snaked through Chinatown's busy streets and formed a human chain to protest the jail. This is a clip from the short documentary Jail Scraper vs. Chinatown by the award-winning filmmaker John Alpert, co-founder of DCTV, which has been located in Chinatown for half a century, the former home of Democracy Now! The direct action was organized by Neighbors United below Canal. This is the co-founder who will join us in a minute.
2: We are not letting you put up these fences. We're gonna defend Chinatown. We're gonna do this civil disobedience to block this truck. Everybody sit down. Any company that comes to Chinatown to profit off of the building of this jail or the demolition of these two jails is not welcome in Chinatown and Little Italy. You are not welcome here. People first, no new jails. People first, no new jails. People first, no new jails. People
0: first, no new jails. We're doing it for our community. We're doing it for our seniors. Right behind you is a senior living right. center. We're doing it
7: for them. We're doing it for the residents. Yes. Over 12,000 letters written. To Mayor Adams against this jail, we have heard zero response from his administration. How dare he not even respond to his constituents?
0: The protesters mentioned New York City Mayor Eric Adams, who took office in January, has continued to support the jail plan he inherited from Mayor Bill de Blasio, despite Adams vowing to stop it when he was on the campaign trail. This is then-candidate Eric Adams speaking in April of 2021 in Chinatown.
1: I know
3: this community well. As a police officer, I was assigned in this community. I know how much they have endured and so if we want to stop the thoughtlessness that goes into what this community has experienced with the recent level of hate crimes, let's stop the institutionalizing of the hate that we're seeing in government. So I join them today in saying no new jail, no building up a jail in this location. We can do a better job.
0: Was then-candidate uh, Eric Adams over the weekend, construction heated up on the jail scraper in Chinatown, even as opposition continues. Just before we went to broadcast, uh, filmmaker John Alpert recorded this update from DCTV's Mike Kimber. It's just feet from the jail.
2: They up the street, and they tanned it up for the jail, and our basement flooded out with water and mud in the basement because this is a low point uh, of the block, and all our mud, all our basement got flooded up. From the jail construction? From the jail construction. Yeah, from the jail construction. That's the reason they tanned this up. is all because of the jail. They t- and they just put
3: this brand new street down in, in August for summer streets, and they tore it all back up.
0: Democracy Now! invited the mayor's office to join us. They sent us this statement, quote, All four jail sites are currently either in demolition to remove existing structures or in site preparation to prepare for construction. We continue to carry out the borough-based jails program every day, they wrote. Well, for more, we're joined by three guests. Jan Lee, who you just heard in that video, is the co-founder of Neighbors United Below Canal. Christopher Marte is a New York City council member representing District 1, which includes Chinatown. He's been at the protests. And John Alpert, who has won more Emmys than we can count, is a journalist and documentary filmmaker, co-founder and executive director of DCTV, along with Keiko Tsuno. Uh, we welcome you all to democracy now. Um, Jan, let's begin with you. Jan Lee, you have been fighting this jail scraper. We're talking about a prison that would be the tallest in the world. What involvement has the community had in this? And um, has it broken ground?
2: Well, we have to be, uh, we have to make a distinction here. It's not a prison. It is a jail. This is intended for, uh, detention, pretrial, and some short-term stays. Uh, let's be clear about the history of Chinatown. We've had a jail at that site since 1838. So we are very familiar with, uh, how the, the city, uh, with varying administrations has torn down jails and built bigger ones in their place. And every time that they've built a bigger one, they're just as dysfunctional as the ones before them. And so what we're saying is we're in a very unique position as a community that has fully accepted uh, our part in creating a more humane environment for those who are incarcerated. It's very important to understand that that we are, ex- we are accepting of this. What we're not accepting is the uh, sacrifice uh, because this is a very dangerous area to be building uh, a 350 – it's not 300, it's 350-foot tall – tallest jail in the world it's also the mass of this building is uh, a couple of blocks long in every direction so we just still don't know what it looks like the plans have not been revealed uh, they won't be revealed uh, for quite a while because this is a design build project so contrary to what a lot of people say about Chinatown being NIMBY we're not at all we're fully accepting when you a say jail NIMBY you site. mean not in and, my
0: backyard
2: yeah. Yeah. And that's 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 just an unfair characterization of our fight that has gone on since 2018 uh, over the, the, the jail being uh, tor- these two jails being torn down and uh, a, a new mega jail being built in its place. We are actually sit Chinatown sits in the largest carceral footprint, probably on the whole east coast of the United States, with every court represented, a federal jail and two city jails.
0: John Alpert, yeah, you just filmed uh, um, Mike Kimber outside the DCTV, a place we know well. We broadcast from there for years. Um, explain what is happening directly next door to you. And what have you been told? How are you preparing uh, for this building of the jail? And is it a fait accompli?
9: Well, the, the city's rushing... To, to, yeah, the city's rushing to make it a fait complete because if they can knock something down, then the, then it's too late to do what we're suggesting is to adapt the current per, the, the jails that we have right now and, and modernize them. That'll be so much cheaper. You know, uh, it, 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 right here, this is sort of instructive between me and Chris is the part of the Empire State Building that's the exact size of the jail that they're trying to build. Uh, the Empire State Building cost about $40 million. Just to tear down what they're doing right now, $250 million. They, have, they haven't built any housing. When was the last time they built housing in our neighborhood? 35 years. Okay, uh, no new hospitals. Uh, the schools are missed. All the money that we need to spend on giving opportunities to people is being spent on iron bars and it's being spent in a building that is, there, nobody's ever seen anything like this before and and it's pork barrel it's absolute pork barrel it's sort of uh, ironic that it's right up the street from the tweed courthouse but this makes the tweed courthouse look like a pup tent
0: you're talking about Boss Tweed, the famous corrupt politician of New York City. Um, well, Christopher Marty, you're the New York City council member who represents the district. What do you understand? Now, this is, is this going to be a third as high as the Empire State Building or as high as the Empire State Building? And what involvement does, uh, you're an elected representative, does your community have?
4: Yeah, so it's going to be a third of the Empire State Building. And as Jan mentioned, for the past four years, we have been organizing, testifying, even suing the city uh, to stop the construction of the world's tallest jail. And uh, leaders of our community, like Jan and myself, have come together and met with the administration a number of times throughout this year to convince them of adaptive reuse. Right now in Rikers Island, almost every single month, we hear about another death. We hear about the inhumane nature that's happening there. We have a plan that will allow you to adaptively reuse the two current jails to house these people much quicker, closer to the court, and closer to their families. Plus, this is going to save the city almost a billion dollars. Right now, they're over budget when it comes to the building and the demolition of this site. And so we have a plan that's supported by our entire community. As Jan said, we have lived with this ecosystem for decades and we want to make sure that the city listens to us and we will continue on fighting to make sure that we are heard.
0: So... Just to be clear, you're saying you support the closing of Rikers, but you don't support what's being done as the alternative. If you can elaborate on what John Alpert just talked about, where money is spent in the city, uh, for example, the issue of housing and hospitals, health care, and the two jails you're talking about are the two jails right there, right now, right? The, one of them used to be called, what, the Bernard Carrick Detention Complex until Bernard Eric, the former police commissioner, was put in the prison and so the the jail. And so then uh, they removed that banner.
4: Yeah. And now it's called the tombs, which is really ironic as well. For me, this is personal. My brother was in and out of Rikers Island growing up. I've been there a number of times. I've taken my nephew when he was a child up there and seen the inhumane nature for everyone involved in that. And right now, with the construction of this new mega jail, the city wouldn't even release plans of what it's going to look like, the programming in it. And throughout this whole process, there hasn't been any transparency or any accountability. It has taken us, the community, to develop our own plan to build a much humane project that's going to be quicker, save money and move people off Rikers Island much quicker. And so we've been pushing forward this plan to make sure that we can have a say in this process.
0: So, Jan Lee, there used to be many more community groups who were very vocally opposed to this. Um, What's happened?
2: Well, uh, Neighbors United Below Canal was formed with Chris and myself and some other community leaders as a clearinghouse of information because the information that we get from the city involved in the Uniform Land Use Review process is extremely complex And the community partners that we partner with have used NUBC as the front face of this opposition. But we should also look toward the positive nature of what an adaptive reuse can be and why people should support it. We're looking at not a renovation. A renovation is just a a cursory um, rudimentary redo of something. We're talking about an entire strip down of these buildings down to the steel girders and building back these buildings with more efficient use of space, uh, all, all to code, and making it a beautiful and more humane environment for the people who are going to be inside. We're also looking at something that could be a shining beacon for the future of New York City and lower Manhattan to look at how we have taken what used to be since 1838, failed policies over and over again at that site, and really create something that the neighborhood could be proud of and still maintain a safe building, not having to dig down many, many feet into what is essentially a swamp. And what... uh, uh, the experience at TV is flooding. Well, that's because the water table is very close to the surface. This is not an area where you want to build a jail scraper. It's not an area where the soil is stable. We will destabilize Chinatown both psychologically, economically, financially. We're still on the heels of many other disasters like 9-11 and Hurricane Sandy and, of course, the global pandemic. We should be reminded also that this plan... Was planned in 2017 when things were a lot different. We're looking at the heels of a global pandemic, which has set back supply chain issues, uh, costs of building. And don't we want to be more green? Shouldn't we not take buildings down and put them into landfills? There's a way to do this that the world, the rest of the world has really adopted, which is adaptive reuse. And I, I really think that we can look forward to a win win situation for both the administration the detainees and for the neighborhood that won't be subject to uh, these years-long demolition and years-long construction. We can get people into safer environments much, much faster.
0: So, John Alpert, the land, uh, the uh, bridge between the two buildings was taken down. Are there permits for this destruction? Uh, How are you informed about all of this in the community?
9: So the, they've knocked the windows out of the bridge. Uh, as we were coming up here today, they they had the the instruments of destruction ready to to bash it down. They're trying to get something down as fast as they can, so that it's fate accompli and they got to take the whole building down. But the the sad situation is that there isn't rationality involved. Nobody's thinking what's really best for the city. It's how much money they can spend as fast as possible. This is the perfect definition of pork barrel. Nobody's thinking about judicial justice. They, they, they put the sheep's clothing of judicial justice on this project. It's just pork barrel. And it's to f- funnel money, unfortunately, away from what our city really, really needs into iron bars. It is as regressive as anything that's ever been done in the history of New York City. And it's shocking that, uh some of the political leaders are going along with this. But, you know, one of the things that has we made this happen is there, there was a lot of corruption, Amy, and people who should have opposed this got bought off. Uh, they're doing anything they can to build this jail.
0: Chris Marte, and, is you know, it possible w- to uh, change this?
4: Yeah. So uh, regarding the permits, there aren't permits to Demol- de- uh, demolish these buildings, just a bridge. And as we saw we have a few weeks ago. We have there.
0: Are- uh, Chris Marte, John Alpert, and Jan Lee. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.